You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. book of the prophet Jonah, chapter 4, and we'll read verse 5 through the end of the chapter together, and then we'll pray before we begin our study. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 5, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. But when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to Your Word, and it is our hope and desire that You would be present here as we study this together that You would open our hearts and open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from Your Word. Bless this time, we do pray. Give me clarity of speech. Give us the ability to discern spiritual things, to assess them rightly, and to apply these truths to our lives. We thank You for Your Word and its clarity, and we ask now Your blessing upon our study of it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I told you last week that I did not know whether we had one Sunday left or two Sundays left in the book of Jonah. And I never enjoy having to make that call because I go back to my office and I look at what we've got in front of us and I say to myself, well, I've got, and this was the case this week, I have enough here, uh, too much for one sermon and barely enough for two sermons. And so I either have to take two sermons and, and throw in a lot of filler and, and kind of make two or two short sermons. I guess I could do that, which nobody would complain about that, two short sermons. Or I could take and just do one sermon and cut out some things. And you will be probably pleased to know that God answered your prayers and I have opted for the latter. So this is going to be our last sermon in the book of Jonah. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. And last week we looked at this final scene which begins in verse 5 where Jonah goes out east of the city and he builds for himself a shelter. And there the Lord has this last encounter with Jonah, this last dialogue and the and the Lord began, began to sort of build an object lesson for Jonah. And he used, you will remember, three common elements. He used a plant. He appointed a plant to grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his discomfort. And also we saw that that phrase could mean to deliver Jonah from his wickedness. And then second, the Lord used another very ordinary element, a worm. A worm, just an ordinary worm, having an ordinary meal on an ordinary day just like worms do, devouring plants for their food. And God used that providentially by His appointment, by design, to cause the plant to wither. And then the Lord used a third, very ordinary element, nothing supernatural about it per se, 
But the timing was certainly supernatural about it, and how God used it was certainly supernatural. And that was the wind. A scorching east wind that blew in off the Arabian desert and beat down upon Jonah's back as he faced west toward the city of Nineveh. And those three things caused Jonah to reach a point of despair and even hoping for death. And so now the Lord has sort of set the stage for His final confrontation with Jonah. And we get now to the point of this whole book. The, the lesson behind the whole book of Jonah is contained in the last three verses. Verses 9 through verse 11. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I want you to notice verse 9. The Lord asked Jonah a question. Do you have a right to be angry about the plant? Now, do you notice that the Lord does not ask Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? He asked Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the plant? Because the plant is the issue with Jonah. It's not just anger about Nineveh anymore, but now Jonah is angry because God has destroyed the plant. Do you have a right to be angry about the plant? This is the second of three questions that the Lord asked Jonah in chapter 4. The first one was up in verse 4. Do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah didn't give the Lord an answer to that question. At least none is recorded for us. The second question is similar. It's here in verse 9. Do you have a right to be angry about the plant? And then the third question that the Lord asked Jonah is down in verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Those three questions. Now listen, when the Lord asks a question of somebody in the Scriptures, it's not because He's trying to elicit information as if the Lord doesn't know and He's trying to find out something. The questions are always asked for the benefit of the hearer. That is, the person who is being asked the question or it's asked for our benefit. It's like a good teacher who asks questions in order to get their pupil to think in the direction that they want them to go. To lead the person who is learning to the conclusion that the teacher wants the pupil to arrive at. That's what the Lord is doing with Jonah. He's asking him questions. Questions are a very effective way to sort of reveal the heart of somebody. When you begin to ask them questions, and you can, people who have a skill at doing this, and I've listened to people do this, they can ask certain questions in a certain way to sort of push people into a corner through their answers. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing with Jonah. He's asking Jonah well-timed, well-worded, very specific questions. And you're going to watch this happen. He is going to back Jonah into a corner where Jonah has to admit that he is wrong and the Lord is right. So the first question, do you have reason to be angry about the plant? I mentioned last week that the plant is the central issue with Jonah. Jonah is angry because the Lord has destroyed the plant. That is what caused Jonah anger. The Lord intentionally drove Jonah to anger by causing the plant to grow up and then by destroying the plant. And then he exacerbated Jonah's anger by causing and appointing that east wind to just blow down on Jonah's head, beat down on him and and make him despair to the point of death. And the central issue in chapter 4 is this plant. This plant. Do you have a reason to be angry about the plant. And what does Jonah say? I have every reason to be angry about the plant. I have every reason to be angry even to the point of death. Now you say, okay, Jim, we understand. Jonah's still angry. He was angry back at the beginning of chapter 4, and now he's still angry. Okay, we got it. But hold on a second. I want you to notice something. The reason for Jonah's anger 
in verse 9 is different than the reason for Jonah's anger back in verse 4. Back in verse 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, what was Jonah angry about? What was it that caused that anger? He was angry because the Lord had spared or delivered the city of Nineveh. In verse 9 of chapter 4, Jonah is angry for an entirely different reason. And it's not here because God delivered Nineveh. Here it is because God destroyed the plant. Do you notice the difference? God destroyed a plant and He delivered a city. And Jonah is angry at God because God has done two things that are opposites. At the beginning of the chapter, Jonah was questioning God's right to destroy. Or sorry, to deliver. What right have you, God, to deliver the city of Nineveh? But here it's a different anger for a different reason. What right have you to destroy this plant? Jonah questioned God's right to deliver. And Jonah questioned God's right to destroy. And those are two aspects of God's character that are on display in chapter 4. God has a sovereign right not only to deliver whomever He will, but to destroy whatever He wants of His creation. And He can do so without being charged with any crime. Since He is the Creator of all things, He can destroy anything He wants, at any time He wants, for any reason He wants, because all that He wants is always just and holy and righteous and good. And at the beginning of the chapter, Jonah is saying to the Lord, you do not have the right to deliver this city. And at the end of the chapter, Jonah is saying to the Lord, you do not have a right to destroy this plant. And God has acted two entirely different ways to demonstrate His sovereignty. And what does Jonah do? He responds with anger both times. It was God's sovereign right to either deliver or to destroy is what rubbed Jonah the wrong way. I suspect that most everybody in this room is fine with having a sovereign God so long as that sovereign God does that which pleases you. Right? I told you back at the beginning of chapter 4 that the reason behind anger with God always boils down to this one key thing. It will manifest itself in different ways but it always boils down to this one key thing. And that is that God acts in a way that you and I do not appreciate or we do not understand. you remember that? God acts in a way that we do not appreciate or we do not understand. At the beginning of the chapter, God acted in a way that Jonah did not appreciate and he did not understand. That is, God saved Nineveh. At the end of the chapter, God has again acted in a way that Jonah did not appreciate and did not understand. And that is, he destroyed the plant. And most of us are fine and we like having a God who is sovereign just so long as when God does whatever He pleases, that whatever He pleases, pleases us. Then we're fine with a sovereign God. But once that sovereign God steps into His creation and does something that does not please us, then we get angry with God. And we don't so much like that sovereignty, do we? Do you like a sovereign God that takes your spouse? Do you like a sovereign God that allows a terminal disease or an illness? Do you like a sovereign God who brings rain when you want sunshine? Or sunshine and heat when you want rain? Or snow when you would prefer to have no snow at all for 11 and a half months of the year? Do you, are you appreciate that sovereign act of God? We're fine with God's sovereignty as long as it doesn't rub us. But when it rubs us, that's when we get angry with Him. And that was the issue here with Jonah. What right do you have to deliver? What right do you have to destroy? And one of the object lessons that God is trying to get through to Jonah is, I have a right to deliver, 
whomever I will, whenever I will, however I will to do it. And I have a right to destroy whatever I want, however I want, whenever I have a right want to do it. You know, when you're laying upside down or hanging upside down and you're looking at things around you, everything looks what? Upside down. Do you, right? And if you stay upside down long enough, try this, and you start to think that way, you can actually begin to almost convince yourself that you're right side up and the world is upside down. And everything around you is upside down. That's where Jonah is at. He has been looking at God and God's dealings upside down for so long that Jonah now is convinced that his perspective is right and God's perspective is wrong. And so then when this sovereign God steps in and does something that Jonah doesn't like or appreciate, Jonah is angry and he has the audacity, it's stunning, to call God before his judgment bar and accuse God of injustice and inconsistency and inequity and judge God's actions according to his own perverted, twisted, and distorted ideals of justice and fairness. And I know people who have done just that. God acts in a certain way, and we call Him to account before us and judge Him by our own standards of fairness and justice. As if the King of all nations and the King of all the universe has to get approval from us or answer to us for anything He has ever done. And He doesn't. And really, Jonah must be wondering about God's consistency. What kind of a God is it that acts one way at one time and another way at another time? I mean, he spared Nineveh, right? That he's an idolatrous, God-hating, wicked, violent, bloodthirsty, wretched group of people, the Ninevites, who had blasphemed God and violated God's law and turned their back on God and done everything to incur His wrath. And God saves them. And then there is a plant. What did this poor plant ever do to God? That God would appoint a worm to destroy this poor plant. This plant was performing a good function. Growing up and causing Jonah shade from the sun which was beating down on his head. The plant was doing a good thing. That plant never hurt anybody. And here was a God who spared a wicked and bloodthirsty city and destroyed a plant that never did any harm to anybody. What kind of inconsistency is that? Well, the Lord's reaction to Jonah and the Lord's statements to Jonah are intended to show that it's not God who is inconsistent, it's Jonah who is inconsistent. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came overnight and perished overnight. Jonah, you had compassion for a plant. That should have been enough. It should, that should have been the end of it. Jonah, you're having pity on a plant. You're all upset over a plant. It's a weed. It came up overnight. It's going to perish overnight. You did nothing to tend it. Now, to cut Jonah some slack, you and I have to admit that we have had compassion on plants. Have we not? This last spring, my family suffered a horrible tragedy. I had to, and I say this on the verge of tears, I had to euthanize a peach tree and a nectarine tree. And not just any peach tree, but a peach tree whose peaches were good beyond words. And this peach tree I had for 15 years. I had not only planted the peach tree, I had watered it and fed it and weeded it. I had pruned it and nurtured it. I sprayed it. And then when we moved from one location to another location, we transplanted that peach tree because it was like one of our children. 
And we plant, transplanted it down to our new house where I watered it and fed it and, and uh, weed-eat it around it and pruned it and sprayed it and did all of the things to keep it healthy. But then as the peach tree began to kind of get older in years, and it was about 15 years old, which is kind of almost at the, at the sort of the extremity of fruit-bearing years for peach trees, it started to get very frail and its, its limbs started to break year after year. And then it got a terminal disease, peach leaf curl, which started to ravage its peach body. And uh, all of the spraying and the pruning and everything for years just, it was basically on life support for the last three years and we nurtured it. And then finally this last year, we pulled the plug, I took the chainsaw out, and I had to cut it down. And it was a tragedy because I was going, I realized that the quality of life for the peach tree was not what it should be. So I had to decide to euthanize it. So I did. And it you say it was hard? It was hard. But listen, the difference between me and Jonah was this plant was all that Jonah cared about. It was all he cared about. This plant for him at this moment was his God. This was all, he had no compassion, no concern, no love whatsoever for not one inhabitant of Nineveh, but this plant. And look how the Lord reproves him. You didn't cause it to grow. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't weed around it. You didn't tend it. You didn't water it day after day after day. You didn't prune it. You didn't nurture it. You didn't feed it. You didn't sort of baby it until it got big enough to be on its own. Whereas I had spent 15 years doing that for a tree. But still, the tree was not my God. You and I might understand Jonah's compassion for a plant, but listen, friends, if your compassion for a plant is greater than your compassion for your neighbor, something is way out of kilter. Way out of kilter. And it was for Jonah. Jonah, you had pity on a plant. You didn't cause it to grow. And look, it came up overnight and perished overnight. How long did Jonah have to get attached to that plant? 24 hours. I can't even get attached to an animal in 24 hours. 24 hours to get attached to something. I had 15 years to get attached to my peach tree. 15 years. Jonah had 24 hours. You had pity for a plant that came up and died that fast. And yet, Jonah, you have no compassion whatsoever for a whole city full of people. A whole city full of people. And Jonah, if you have a right to have compassion on a plant for which, which came up overnight and perished overnight, which is here today and gone tomorrow, here's the little argument. Should I not have compassion on a city full of people that will live forever? Should I not have compassion on them? And if you have a right to have compassion on a plant that you did nothing to plant, you did nothing to tend, should I not have compassion on a whole city full of people whom I have given life and whose life I have sustained since the day they were born. Do I not have that right? And the answer obviously is, yes. Now you see what the Lord was doing with Jonah when He asked him the question, do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah said, yeah, I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be angry even to the point of death. God was giving him rope because the next question cinches it right up, doesn't it? If you have a right, Jonah... Now, did Jonah really have a right? No. But Jonah insisted he did. It's as twisted, warped, distorted perverted understanding of reality, looking at the entire world upside down, backwards to what it really was, judging God by His own standards of fairness and justice and consistency and rationality and logic. And in the middle of all of that, Jonah insists that he has a right to be angry about this plant which God has destroyed. And that God would have the audacity to destroy His plant. And God cinches up the rope by saying, and He's arguing from the lesser to the greater, if you indeed have a right, 
then if you indeed love that plant, then how dare you begrudge me love and compassion for a city full of people that will live forever? A city in which there are, look at the phrase, 120,000 people who do not, excuse me, 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand as well as many animals. Jonah, there are 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, and, and there's some question as to what is meant by the phrase 120,000 people who do not know the difference between the right hand or the left hand. And it can be taken in one of two ways. The first, and I don't think this has any validity, is to suggest that what the Lord is talking about there is uh, moral judgment. The ability to discern between right and left as if that's the ability to discern between good and evil. You have 120,000 people who cannot tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And so how can I destroy these people who don't know the difference between right and wrong? Can't you have compassion on a city of 120,000 people who don't know right from wrong? Is that what the Lord is saying? I don't think it refers to 120,000 people who don't know the difference between right and wrong. Because the Bible affirms that whether they knew the God of Israel or not, the law of God is written on their hearts. And their conscience bears witness to the fact that they know what is right. And they know what is wrong. And the people in Nineveh knew that stealing was wrong. And that murder was wrong. And that raping was wrong. And that pillaging was wrong. They knew that idolatry was wrong. And they suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. The Lord is not giving them a, a, a free pass, as it were, as, just as, as if they did not know the difference between right and wrong. They knew it. But the, the, the 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, that's not a, a metaphor for moral judgment. It is literally 120,000 children or people who are not old enough to even know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. It's 120,000 children who had not yet literally reached the age where they're able to discern between the right hand and the left hand. That's the population of children. Now, the Lord has already argued from the lesser to the greater. And He has said to Jonah, if, you've had, if you have a right to have compassion on the plant, surely I have a much greater right to have compassion on a whole city. And now he's arguing from the greater down to the lesser. And he's saying to Jonah, if you cannot have compassion on a whole city, certainly you can have compassion on 120,000 children. Can't you? Can't you look past the wicked king? Can't you look past the wicked nobles? Can't you look past the idolatrous priests in the temples and the people offering blood sacrifices and human sacrifices? Can't you look past them and at least have compassion on 120,000 children? who are not even old enough to know the difference between right and left yet? And Jonah, if you can't have compassion on children, then what? Certainly you can have compassion on animals. Jonah, you have pity on a plant. Which is a greater form of life, plants or animals? Animals. Can't you at least love the dogs? There's cattle there. There's beasts of burden there. Surely, Jonah, you can go at least one more step and recognize that if I were to destroy this city in a Sodom and Gomorrah type fashion, that even the animals would be wiped out. Can't you have compassion on animals? How are you going, if you are going to begrudge, if you are going to take for yourself the right to have pity on a plant, how can you begrudge me the right to have compassion on whomever I will have compassion? And did not God have the right to have compassion on the city of Nineveh since He had planted that city and watered that city and caused that city to grow? I ask you this. Can any kingdom at all ever arise without God's permission? Any kingdom. Is there any authority whatsoever established on the face of this planet that is not from God? Romans 13 says there is none. 
There is no authority that does not exist apart from God. No nation can rise to national prominence without the hand of God involved in it, without God's permission, without God planting that, that kingdom or that nation. In Acts 17, Paul says God is not served by human hands as if God needed anything, since He Himself gives life and breath to all things, and He has from one man made every nation on the face of the earth. And God has established their times, and He has established their boundaries. Acts 17, verse 25 and 26. That's God's doing. God determines national boundaries. God determines when a kingdom rises and when a kingdom falls. He raises up kings and He puts down kings. And no individual in Assyria had come into existence apart from His doing. And no person had ever been sustained in Nineveh apart from God's doing. Every creature that has ever existed has enjoyed the goodness of God in one measure or another, in one form or another, to one degree or another. And Nineveh was no exception. So did God have a right to have compassion on the city of Nineveh? Yes, He did. And what is the Lord doing? He is flipping Jonah right side up. Look, Jonah, it's not me that is upside down. It is not I who have it backwards. You are backwards. You have it upside down. Your perspective is warped. And He is trying to get Jonah to see that it is not God who is being inconsistent. It is Jonah who is being inconsistent. So what are the lessons that we learn from the book of Jonah? Let me summarize three of them. First, you and I can learn that God is right. That God is right. In the book of Jonah, God has insisted from the beginning of the book to the end of the book that all of His ways are just and right. And that God has a right to do that which is right and that which is righteous and just. And truth and righteousness are the foundation of His throne. And all of God's ways are righteous and just, and they are right altogether. The judgments of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. Everything God does is right. And everything that happens, God allows to happen for a reason, and His reasons are justifiable, and they are right. So God's compassion has been demonstrated in the book of Jonah, and God's compassion has been vindicated. God has vindicated Himself, and He has shown that His ways are righteous and His ways are just. Second, you and I can learn that not only is God right, but that God is sovereign. And I told you at the beginning of the book of Jonah, and I've mentioned it several times through, the sovereignty of God is one of the key themes in the book of Jonah. The sailors on the open sea had to acknowledge that Thou, O Lord, have done as Thou hast pleased. Whatever you want, God, you are able to do, and you do that which pleases you. And all of those sailors bowed the knee before a sovereign God in the midst of that storm. And the captain acknowledged that God had the right to either spare the ship or to destroy the ship. Boy, what the parallel with Jonah, huh? Jonah could not allow God the right to either spare what he wanted or destroy what he wanted. But the captain said, who knows? God may, your God may turn. Your God may spare us. He may save our lives. The captain recognized that God had the right to spare and God had the right to destroy. He had the right to deliver and He had the right to destroy. And then the sailor said, You, O Lord, have done as You have pleased. That's sovereignty. Then Jonah chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. And there Jonah had to recognize the sovereignty of God. But then he fell out of that. And then in Jonah chapter 3, all the citizens of Nineveh, when they repented, they say, who knows? The Lord may relent and turn from His burning anger. The citizens of Nineveh understood and recognized that God had the right to destroy them and God had the freedom to deliver them. Jonah had to understand the same things that the sailors learned 
and that the Ninevites learned, and that is that God is free to deliver and God is free to destroy. He is sovereign. And He can do in His creation as pleases Him. Now listen, that would be a terrifying reality if it were not for the third lesson of the book of Jonah, and that is that God is good and God is compassionate. Imagine a sovereign God who is not good. How would the rest of your day go? If you knew that the God in heaven could do whatever He wanted, and He was powerful enough to inflict on this earth anything He wanted, for whatever reason He wanted, but you had no confidence whatsoever that He was good, you would live in terror, would you not? Because you would live in fear of a God who you never had the confidence that He was going to do that which was good for me, or He was going to do that which was good for His name's sake. And so you would be terrified. But imagine a God who was only good and not sovereign. Now what kind of a God would that be? He would wish you good. He would will to do good to you, but have no ability to do it. So, His wishful thinking might make you take comfort. Well, there is a God in heaven who sure well wishes me. He wishes to do me good. He would sure like to do good to me, but He just doesn't have the power to effect it then what confidence or comfort would that be? Because then all of His goodness would just be mere wishful thinking. But when you understand that God is both sovereign and He is good, then I have the guarantee that anything that is good for me, He is able to affect. And that which is best for me, God is able to do. And so I can have confidence in Him. That He is both sovereign and good, and that all His ways are right. And God's goodness is not narrow goodness. That's another lesson from the book of Jonah. Actually, I guess this is four, not just three. God's goodness is not just a narrow goodness. It was not just for the nation of Israel. He was the God of the Jews, but He was not the God of the Jews only. And in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was chosen, it was formed, it was nurtured, it was brought up, they were given the law and the sacrifices and the temples, and was committed to them all the oracles of God for the purpose and with the intention that Israel would be a light to the other nations. That they would show forth the praises of God's excellency and His everlasting loving kindness to all the nations. And there should have been hundreds, there should have been thousands of Jonahs who took the Word of God to the nations around the nation of Israel to teach them and to show them the goodness of the God of Israel and the loving kindness of the God of Israel, and the grace of the love of God and of the God of Israel. But Israel didn't do that. And that was God's intention. They were to be a light to bless all the other nations. They were to be a mission-sending nation. But they didn't. But God's love is not just for Jews. It's not just for one narrow group of, of people. It's not just for Caucasian Americans in the 20th century. God has a love for all peoples of all nations of all times. And His compassion is great and it extends to all of His creation. He loves all men with a passionate, compassionate love that a Creator has for its creation, that a God has for everything that is under His rule. He loves all men. He is compassionate far beyond you and I. And that's the end of the book of Jonah. It ends with a question. Kind of sudden, isn't it? You say, no, it wasn't sudden. It took us 16 weeks to go through that. That wasn't sudden at all. Well, the ending is sudden. 
You just kind of come and you get dropped off at the ending of the book. Should I not have compassion on the city of Nineveh in which there are 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from the left hand and even some animals, Jonah? Question mark? There's no... What happens at the end of this? What? Where do we go from there? I'm left with questions. Because you know I have insatiable curiosity. I'm left with questions. What happened next? Did Jonah get up and dust himself up and wipe the sweat off his brow and take a drink of water and say, you know, Lord, you're absolutely right. I have been wrong the whole way through. From the beginning of this whole adventure, in back in Gath Heifer, in chapter 1, verse 1, when the Word of the Lord came to me and said, go to Nineveh, I was wrong then. I was wrong on board this ship. I was wrong in the sea. I was wrong in the belly of the whale until I repented. I got up. I dust myself off with all the whale vomit. I was wrong when I was resentful to you. I was wrong in my approach to Nineveh. I was wrong to leave the city of Nineveh and to come up here and to wait for its destruction. I was wrong to be angry. I was wrong to be angry about the whole thing, Lord. So I'm done. I apologize. I repent. I'm going to go back. And I got up and went back into the city of Nineveh and began to teach the people of Nineveh about His God. Is that what happened? I would love, love to be able to say that that was what happened. But I have no confidence that that is indeed what happened. In reality, we don't know how this whole story ended. Did Jonah go back home to Gath Heifer and, and meet with his people? Did Jonah go back into the city of Nineveh? Did he die? I guess we know he died, but I mean, did he die right then like he wanted to die? He eventually died. But did he die repentant? Did he ever recognize the error of his ways? And did he repent? And did he change? And did he apologize to God? And did he ever get a glimpse of the heart of God and God's compassion for all peoples and all nations. You're going to have to wait till you get to heaven to ask Jonah that. Said, Jonah, what was the end of that story like? Because I feel like you left off a whole chapter there. It could have been a whole chapter. Which would have been another ten weeks for our pastor. It would have been a whole chapter, but you left off that. And then while you're asking Jonah about that, you could also ask Jonah, what was it like being in the stomach of that fish? Was it anything like Jim described it? Because that's what I'm going to ask him. So even though we leave the book of Jonah and we leave it with a question mark, the question, the questions that we are left with should not be our questions about what happens next, but the question that God leaves us with at the end. I think there's an intentional reason why it ends suddenly. It's because that's the point of the whole book. It's it. That's the question mark, that's it. Nothing else needs to be said. The point's been made. Here's the point. Jonah, I have compassion on lost people and I love them and my love is not restricted just to the nation of Israel. And my love is not restricted just to you. And I have the freedom and the sovereignty to destroy what I want and to deliver what I want. And I'll exercise compassion on whom I'll exercise compassion and I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll love whom I love the way that I want to love them. I'm free to do that. And you have to understand that my ways are good and my ways are righteous and my ways are true. And if you have compassion on a plant, you should not begrudge me compassion on a multitude of people. And so I have loved them and I have shown them grace. And now the question really is for Jonah... And the question is for you. If God loves the lost, ought not you to love the lost? If God has compassion for those locked in darkness, ought not you to have compassion on those who are locked in darkness? If God loves all nations, ought you to love all nations of people for the Gospel's sake and for the Kingdom's sake? Ought that not to be your calling? Or are you like Jonah so caught up with the plants of your life that God has given to you, which are here today and gone tomorrow, and so concerned over building your own little kingdom 
that you and I are not willing to forsake our ease and our comforts and our conveniences and all of the little plants in order to share the Gospel with people. Ought not you and I to have the same compassion for the lost that God does? And so that's the question that rings in our ears. Do you love people the way God loves people? Do you see people the way God sees people? You have the Gospel. Having heard the good news and having heard the Gospel of your salvation, and having been concerned about your own soul enough to repent and turn to Christ for salvation, will you begrudge others the same grace that has been shown to you and the same mercy? God has compassion. Do you? That's the question we're left with. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the grace and compassion that You have made known to us. For the revelation of Your person in this book and who You are, we thank You that You are a holy God that You are good, that You are compassionate, that You show pity, and that You are sovereign. We thank You that we can trust You. We thank You that You are good in all of Your ways and that the foundation of Your throne is righteousness and goodness. And we ask, O God, that You would light in our own hearts a passion to share the Gospel, to proclaim truth, to see lost people saved, to see the Gospel preached for the advancement of Your Word and the advancement of the Kingdom for Your name's sake and for the sake of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.